modern day parable, as I was reading this, I kept thinking I would probably write the parable on the lost pair of reading glasses um, that we diligently search for. And then upon finding, we rejoice and the whole household is celebrating. I found my glasses. And then after that, I don't know, maybe the lost cell phone or something like that. But Jesus gave us the parables of the the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So we'll be looking at those two today. And just so that we're, we're, we're understanding where we're at as far as the big picture is concerned, uh, where, these, where these parables are set, we, we should understand that the big theme of Luke, or at least what we are identifying as the big theme of Luke, is uh, to seek and to save the lost. Because Jesus says that, and we'll be studying that eventually, where Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so that is really one of the big themes. And and Luke wrote this gospel. He wrote it to a man by the name of Theophilus. And one of the reasons he wrote this gospel is so that Theophilus might be certain of the things that he had heard. And it would be simple. It's easy to perhaps doubt or, or question, is this worth it? What kind of Savior is Jesus? What kind of uh, salvation do I have in Christ? And so um, Luke is writing to Theophilus that he may be certain. And I pray that as we, we read these parables and we, and, and we come to look at them, that we also will have certainty about the type of God that we serve and the type of Savior that we have. And we will be blessed in all of those things. So that's kind of the big picture let me give you just a, a quick preview of where we're going to go today, and then we'll, we'll delve into the text. Now, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to be looking at um, two of the three parables. These are very well-known parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and perhaps one of the most well-known parables, the, the lost son or the prodigal son. Probably that and the Good Samaritan may be the most well-known parables that Jesus told. And so we, we want to look at those. And it's, it's interesting because when we start looking at parables, we want to make sure that we don't make the mistake of assigning these to just some nice folksy tale with a moralistic ending. Right? Nor do we want to... Um, it, so we don't want to ignore the, the profound found message that Jesus is teaching and perhaps sometimes it's easy because to, to, to treat parables lightly but I want you to know that the that the profound message that Jesus will be sharing in these are to be considered with great intensity These two parables, well, actually all three parables, we are going to see, first of all, a rebuke to the religious leaders. In fact, I will argue that they do not know God. They have no idea who God is. And Jesus is rebuking the people who ought to know who God is. He's rebuking them that you don't know God. And also, this parable should serve as a comfort to the lost or comfort to sinners. And I pray that as we go through that, that somehow, perhaps by God's mercy in this message, the same emphases would come out. And that is, if 
it would serve as a rebuke to us in those areas where perhaps we have mischaracterized God. But it would also serve as a comfort that God is merciful and just. So, These are very, very powerful truths. We will learn a lot about God. We will learn a lot about um, His human creation. As we go through, we'll see, and this will be the outline I'll pretty much follow, not super closely, but the the general pattern of um, of the two parables today is something is lost, something is sought, something is found, and something is celebrated. So that's the general outline that we'll be following. Lost, sought, found, celebration. And our primary focus today, I'll, I'll primarily focus on the parable of the lost sheep. Though when we get to the parable of the lost coin, there's two or, th- two or three, um, or maybe one or two, unique features that I think are worthy of discussion. So, there we are, big picture, smaller preview. Are we ready? Alright, here we go. Luke chapter 15, follow along with me in verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. What man man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And... When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. So we begin with this very interesting statement. It's easy to to blow by. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And it's really easy to just go blow right by that and get into the good stuff of the parables. But I should note and alert you to notice how the previous verse ended. Remember, there are no chapter distinctions. All right? We put those in. But notice how the the previous verse ends. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear what Jesus has to say. So, this is... Very Lukeish, isn't it? If you've been with us in our study of Luke, you will note that this is Luke loves to lift up the outcasts. He loves to emphasize God's favor on the downtrodden. And who are the ones hearing? Who are the ones who has ears to hear? It is the tax collectors and sinners, the ones who were outcasts, the ones who people said have no relationship to God whatsoever. Jesus said, or Luke is reminding us, these are the ones who are coming to Jesus with ears to hear. He is not saying that the religious leaders have ears to hear. In fact, we will argue in just a moment that they have turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to the person of Jesus Christ. And like I said, very Luke and very Luke-ish 
type of writing. We, we might call this a reversal. And Luke loves the reversal story where the downtrodden become the heroes of the story and the wise and the in, intellectuals and the wealthy become the, um, the scandalous in the, the, in the story. And maybe one of our best examples of this is the uh, story of that, the immoral woman at the banquet. Remember, they're, they're having a feast probably after a synagogue service and everybody's, all the religious leaders are, are sitting around and there's this immoral woman who comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And this is a classic reversal story. This is classic Luke. So as you read Luke, pay attention to these things because these are, these, this highlights or emphasizes, I believe, Luke's point and exalts or clarifies what Luke is trying to say. So this woman, by the end of this account, the woman, this so-called immoral woman, becomes the woman whom we all ought to emulate. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are the ones who are the immoral. She becomes the faithful one. She becomes the one who everybody ought to look to and say, wow, I should do what she's doing. And the religious leaders are the ones that are the Truly the immoral ones. This is what we, call, we, we refer to or, or talk about when we talk about a reversal. That, and, and this happens all the time in the Gospels, but especially in Luke. And here I think we see one of those, one of those reversals. that tax collectors and sinners have ears to hear. And they are coming to Jesus to hear what he has to say. Meanwhile, as they are coming, tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear what Jesus has to say. The Pharisees and the scribes grumble and make an accusation towards Christ. And they are grumblers. They are just like their forefathers. Just like their forefathers grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, who are these people? They have no right to be leading us. They are grumblers and they have inherited their grumbling from their forefathers. So instead of having ears to hear, they have mouths that grumble. And the thing that they are grumbling about is that Jesus is eating with sinners. That was the source of their complaint. Remember, Pharisees were separatists. They believed that we do not want to have anything to do with the so-called unwashed masses. We don't want to have anything to do with so-called sinners, people who aren't as fastidious about the law as we are. We are the true believers. Anybody who falls short of us, we do not want to have anything to do with. And here Jesus is coming along saying, bring all the sinners and the tax collectors. I will share the gospel of the kingdom with them. And so the Pharisees grumble and make an accusation. The accusation, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And as I was meditating on this, I was thinking, oh dear God, let us be charged with the same crime. I pray that this church be charged with the exact same thing. You know, those folks at church on the animal place eat and drink with sinners. First of all, because folks, there's a lot of sinners in this church. <laughs> the one who stands in this pulpit has his fair share of issues. But I pray that we would be a place. Jesus, tax collectors and sinners felt it was safe to come to Jesus and hear what he had to say. And I pray, pray that this would be a safe place. I don't know who the tax, you know, I don't know, maybe tax collectors are the 
the worst of the worst. It's getting close to tax season. But I don't know who, who we might consider today as the most undesirable and the most um, scandalized type of people. Perhaps, folks, somebody walks, walks in today and or somebody walks into our church who identifies as transgender, will we take them to lunch? Will we invite them over to dinner? Or will we say, yeah, you can come to church and you can hear the message, but by golly, don't you dare enter my house. Will they feel comfortable, that type of, will that person feel comfortable enough to walk in and hear what Jesus has to say? Will a same-sex couple walk into it? And will we have them over to our house for dinner? Will we love them? Jesus had this amazing ability to never compromise biblical truth or the truth of God's Word and yet at the same time love people who were far from God and share the kingdom of God with them. I pray that we would be charged with the same thing. I pray that we would be charged as people who love tax collectors, and sinners. And so he tells them this parable as they are grumbling about Jesus eating and drinking and coming into contact with these, quote, horrific people. Jesus tells them this parable. Remember, this is a response to the accusation. In fact, all three parables that we will study in in chapter 15 are a response to this accusation. And he begins, What man among you, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, and if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? What man of you, when you see something that is lost, will not go and search it out? So, what man of you is drawing the Pharisees into the parable? Which one of you Pharisees, if you have something valuable that's lost, which one of you would not go and find it or go seek for it? It implies that no one, not even one of the Pharisees, would fail to act in such a manner. I I think also even more deeply, it demonstrates or recognizes the value of the lost. In other words, lostness does not diminish value. We need to keep that in mind, that our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, the people that we don't know, the ones who are lost still have incredible value. They are created in the image of God and they are lost. Have you ever been lost? It's frightening. Here is the terrible reality of those who are lost or spiritually lost. They have no idea. When I was lost, I didn't know I was lost. I thought I was doing just fine. My life was good. Going in a direction I was pretty happy with. Somebody would come along and say, you're lost. Like, no, I'm not. I know exactly where I'm going. So we should note here that, first of all, being lost does not diminish value. In fact, we should also recognize that lostness is our natural state. That without Christ, we are lost. So, 
What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, you didn't say, oh, well, I lost one, and that, that sheep has no value. That lamb has no value. The wool that would be provided by that lamb has no value whatsoever. Absolutely not. It's lost, but its value remains. And so, therefore, because it's valuable, I need to go get it. And so, we come to the next aspect, and that is seeking out the lost. And you will note that in the, uh, an exhaustive and diligent search is... is is embarked upon and one searches until the lost has been found. And so again, what man among you, if you lose your sheep, what man among you would not go and search it out? What man among you, having a lost sheep, doesn't go? Certainly you guys, even you Pharisees are going to go and do that. Now the lost is found. I love how he carries it home. He bears the lamb. Perhaps the lamb has been weakened by its time being lost, but you'll notice that the bearing is, is, is a joyful bearing. And it reminds me of this passage in, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So what man among you if you lost a sheep, would not see its value and go seek and try to find it, and finding it would not bear joyfully bear its burdens. I don't know what a sheep weighs. 100 pounds? Maybe a weakened sheep? Less than that? But gladly bears the burden, rejoicing that he has the privilege to bear this weakened sheep back to the fold. What man among you wouldn't do that? And then finally, celebration. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What man among you, you Pharisees that are grumbling that I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners, what man among you would not find it valuable to go and seek and find a lost sheep, bear, joyfully bear it back, and then come back saying, let's have a party because the thing that was lost has now been found, and you gather all of your friends and your relatives and your neighbors, and you gather together, and you have a joyful celebration over the fact that the lost has now been found. Rejoice! One of the things we want to note here is he just doesn't end with rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. That would be a a potent ending to this parable. But he says just so, in the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Note the joy of heaven over a sinner who repents. That's an awesome thought. That heaven is a joyous place. 
Heaven is a joyful place. You wonder why heaven is a joyful place? Because the king of heaven is the most joyful being in the entire universe. Have you ever thought about that? That of God being the most joyful being in the entire universe. I sometimes think, when I think about God, when we think about the attributes or the characteristics or the perfections of God, we often think of holiness or justice or love or all all these other perfections or attributes. Charlie's teaching systematic theology downstairs, and and I teach at a class in in Phoenix. And I can tell you this, at least in my notes, in, in, in in my notes when we go over the attributes of God, to my shame and I'm going to change my notes, is I do not have joy as an attribute or a perfection of God. That's getting changed. You agree, Charlie? That's got to happen. God is the most joyful being in the entire universe, and we oftentimes overlook that. When you think about God, when your friends think about God, when family thinks about God, is joy one of the things we think about what it ought to be? I hope to change that today, if not. I think about when God created all things. And he said, and it is good. You know, he didn't say, well, at nine o'clock in the morning, God went through this particular formula. No, he created. And then he said, it's good. I can see God creating and then God rejoicing. Man, that's great. Look at that. Look at that light from the sun. Look at that sunrise. That is awesome. It is good. Good and heaven is joyful. Look at the moon. Wow. Turned out exactly like I planned it. Imagine that. And God creates a daffodil and he goes, Look at that. Look at that daffodil. It's good. And there's joy in heaven. And then he creates a duckbill platypus and he goes, Man, this will confound everybody. But it's good. And I can see him joyful over duckbill platypus. Platypi? God is joyful. And it is good. Perhaps the, the most profound and the most clear passage of the joyful God is found in one of the most darkest books in the Bible. It's in Zephaniah. And I know I've taught on this before, so if this is a repeat, um, I think it bears repeating. I, I love he- he- reading this passage of text. If you've never he- heard this, it may surprise you about the joyful God. And so it may be good if you turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning with 14. And you will not be docked any merit points in heaven if you have to look in your table of contents to find the book of Zephaniah. I would tell you it's just before Haggai, but I don't know that that might help or it's right after Habakkuk. But if that helps, then then there it is. Um, But Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Remember, the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah are just dark. Dark, dark, bleak, black, no hope. Condemnation, death, judgment, every horrific thing you can think of. And then verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult. Note those terms. Rejoice and exult. 
with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So this idea of rejoice and exalt. Exalt, by the way, is, well, it's physical. It's entire body participating in exaltation. It is the entire person dancing. I know we're not a very expressive church, perhaps because I'm not the most expressive individual and people say that a church will take on the character of its pastor and perhaps that's true, but folks, it wouldn't bother me at all if perhaps we were a little bit more exalting. (laughs) We used to have a woman sat, sat toward the back. Her name was Beverly and Beverly was always dancing just a little bit, but that was good. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and dance. Here's the reason why. The Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. Rejoice and dance. Why? Your sins have been forgiven and God is your God and you are his people. You ought to be celebrating and dancing and rejoicing. That's an awesome passage of text. Oh, but wait. That's not what I wanted to talk about. Because that's not talking about God. It's talking about us. We're rejoicing because God has redeemed us. That's a reason to celebrate. Listen to this. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Here we go. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty warrior who will say, Who will do what? He will rejoice over you with gladness. Not only do the people of God dance and rejoice because they have been redeemed by God, but God rejoices and dances over His people because they are His people. He loves them. Can you see that? I don't want to be idolatrous, but can you see, can you imagine God dancing? God dancing because I'm their God and they're my people. They're redeemed. He is the most joyful being in all of creation and He is rejoicing and celebrating and exulting in the fact that my people have been redeemed. And then He sings over them. I wonder what God sings. He will rejoice over you with with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt. There it is. He will exalt. He will dance with loud singing. I, I don't know what's going to happen when we stand before the Lord. I wonder if He'll dance and sing a song. I, I don't want to be blessed. I don't want to be demeaning of God, but God is the most joyful being in the entire universe. And the thing that brings God the greatest joy is a sinner who repents. And when you appear at heaven's door, the greatest thing, the most joyful thing then, is that you are God's people and you and He is your God. And that is, you think, and I'm going to be dancing, I'm going to be singing. Well, what if God joins in the dance and joins in the song? Or creates the dance and creates the song? He is our God. We are His people. This is a cause for celebration. Matthew 25:21 tells us you all know this verse well done thou good and faithful servant welcome into your what welcome into your joy what are you being welcome into heaven is the 
The environment of heaven is joy. Romans chapter 15, 13, and you guys know this, don't you? And now may the God of all hope fill you with what? All joy and peace in believing. God is the source of joy and heaven is the storehouse of joy. It is like God, the most joyful being in the entire universe, fills heaven. Heaven is the storehouse of joy and then it flows out to his people. We should be joyful people. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, joy is the serious business of heaven. God is the source of all joy. So, let me summarize this this parable. The parable is about the joy of God when sinners repent. Not the grumbling of the Pharisees. And, And so here's the point I think that Jesus is making. How is it that God can value the lost? How is it that God can expend great effort in his loving pursuit of the lost? How is it that God will joyfully bear their weakness and celebrate their return, and yet you grumble? How is it that God can be joyful over the return of a sinner who repents, and you Pharisees grumble? I'll tell you the answer to the question. You don't know God, you don't know his character, and you are far from him. How is it that you can despise the things that bring joy to God? The reason you can despise the things that bring joy to God is you have no idea who God is and you know nothing about Him. They do not have ears to hear. So the first parable, actually both parables, all three parables, are about the joy of God when a sinner repents. We wonder, I wonder what what would make God happy. I'll tell you what would make God happy is people repenting of their sin and calling upon him and, and, being, and, and he being their God and they being his people, this, would, this will cause a party in heaven. All this is spurred on by these people grumbling, oh, this person has dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And yet God finds joy when tax collectors and sinners come to him. We come to the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the same pattern applies here. There's something lost, something sought for, something found, and then a celebration. But I do want to point out the idea of this, this parable seems to give greater emphasis to the search. In the previous parable, the, the shepherd just went and searched. In this one here, you'll notice there's quite a bit more emphasis on the sweeping and the lighting the lamp and all of the, the things necessary, and perhaps that's just giving... Um, color or picture or contour to the, to the parable, but I don't think we should miss the emphasis on the searching. And the fact of the matter is this. God is a missionary God. He is a searching God. God is a missionary God. And again, you've probably heard me say it numerous times. God's missionary activities begin in Genesis chapter 3, to be specific, verse 9. 
God began his missionary endeavors in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Adam, where are you? Adam had sinned. And sinful men and sinful women like Adam and Eve do not run towards God. They never do and they never have. They always run away from God. And it would be perfectly reasonable to say, well, that's the way they want it. That's the way they can have it. But that's not the God who's revealed in the Bible. The God who's revealed in the Bible goes out and seeks sinners. He sought out Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? It's not like he didn't know where Adam was. But Adam, where are you? His missionary activities begin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. The missionary activities of God don't end there. Remember, there was a guy by the name of Noah, a preacher of righteousness, proclaiming the, the, proclaiming the, the good news about the God of salvation. For 120 years, he preached the good news and proclaimed righteousness and that there was a God who was out seeking the lost. And then we see a guy by the name of Abram, don't think for a moment that Abram was some great righteous man who loved God and was looking for him. And all of a sudden, God says, yeah, I need you. You can serve me. Abram was a pagan moon worshiper in a pagan moon worshiping land. For all we can understand, his parents were pagan moon worshipers. And his grandparents were pagan moon worshipers. And he was just doing the pagan moon worshiping thing. And God said, Abram, get up and go to the place that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. Through you, all of the nations of the world. I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to reach out to all the nations. And I'm going to do it through you. So Abram, put aside your moon worshiping pagan ideas. Get up, follow me, and I will make you the father of all... Of of a nation, and I will make you a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. All proud as can be. Look at all the stuff that I've made. First of all, God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar. That didn't quite get through, and he continued in his arrogance. Then God struck him down. Made him act like a cow. Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and gave glory to God. God is seeking even an arrogant, prideful, pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar. God sought Israel even when they were in exile. God continually sought Israel. He created Israel and then continually sought her. When they thought that he had abandoned them in Babylonian exile, God says, don't worry, I'm going to come and get you. At the right time, when 70 years are completed, I'm going to come and I am going to deliver you out. God sought a pagan nation called Nineveh. Just a horrible nation. One of the most violent, oppressive, destructive people. God says, yeah, I want them. I want them to repent. And I'm going to go get that violent, nasty, vile people. And they are going to turn to me and I'm going to send a guy by the name of Jonah who didn't even want to go. 
Jonah was a lot like the Pharisees. What? I do not want somebody like that to repent and turn from their sins. You ought to judge them. And God says, no, I'm not going to judge them. I'm going to save them. And I'm going to use you, Mr. Jonah. Jonah continued his terrible attitude. As I've stated before, he preached the worst sermon ever preached. It was. It was a horrible sermon. I can't think that he said it with much enthusiasm. Repent. 40 40 days you're going to be destroyed. Repent. And the Spirit of God fell and the whole town repents in sackcloth and ashes and fasting. Even animals were fasting. God is a missionary God. He's seeking the lost. How about you and me? I can tell you this. I was not looking for God when he got a hold of me. I was not down in the dumps thinking that somehow, oh, I'm so miserable lying in a gutter. I need God. I didn't need God. I was perfectly happy where I was. Perfectly satisfied where I was. But for whatever reasons that I will never understand except grace, God said, John, where are you? And I had said for years, if you could ever prove to me that God existed, if God could ever prove he existed, I would serve him every day of my life. But until then, there is no way I will serve a God of somebody's imagination. And that day, That night, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he made himself known, said, John, where are you? And I said, well, I can't hide anymore. Here I am. You upheld your end of the deal. I'll uphold mine. I don't know what that looks like, but here we go. God sought me. I was not searching for God. Not in a million years did I want God. But God is a missionary God. And so we see this woman searching and trying to find that which was lost. And once again, we see the same pattern. Rejoice. Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I have lost. And listen to this phrase. This is so interesting. It it kind of caught me by surprise. Just so. So, just like that, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And this was new to me. Maybe it's not new to you. This was really new to me. I've always thought this is the joy of the angels, but that's not what it says. It's joy in the presence of the angels. It is joy in the midst of the angels. Again, heaven is the most joyful place in the universe because it is inhabited by the most joyful being in the universe and it is filled with repentant sinners who are the greatest joy of the most joyful being in all of the universe. There is joy in the presence of the angels. The joy, they're in the They're in the presence of joy. God is the joy of of heaven and the angels are in the presence and God joys when one repentant sinner comes to to him. And he joys and all of heaven is filled with joys and the angels are in the presence of that joy. Heaven is the most joyful place in the entire universe because God is the most joyful being in the entire universe, and he inhabits heaven. Oh, folks. 
makes you kind of want to go be in heaven. Sounds like eternal life. Sounds like a good thing. Oh, it's going to be boring. We're going to be sitting on the cloud playing harps and just doing... I don't know. Sounds like there's joy. Sounds like there's celebration. It sounds like it's filled or inhabited with God, who is a joyful God. So I'll conclude with just a few brief words. I guess we need to ask ourselves, are you or are we, are we more Pharisee or more tax collector? Do we have ears to hear? These parables serve as a rebuke to the Pharisees, but they also serve as a comfort to sinners. Can you imagine a tax collector sitting around hearing this? Going, really? Are you kidding me? That God would find joy in like a guy, a guy like me? I've been told that I have no value. And now this Jesus comes along and he tells me that God sees great value in me and takes joy in me. Really? I'm in. I'm in on that. This should also, we should also take note that this should be for us a lesson in discipleship. Remember, much of what Jesus is doing is he's training disciples. He's training his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he's going to go to the cross. And when he is crucified, resurrected, and ascended, he is entrusting this entire program to 12 guys. Well, actually, there will be 120 in that upper room. He is entrusting this whole deal to 120 folks. So he's training them up. He's training them up. I need you to know how to be a disciple. I need you to know how to make a disciple. And this is how it gets done. This is, these are the characteristics of a disciple. And a couple things we should take note of. And that is recovery of the lost takes diligent effort. Recovery of the lost takes diligent effort. And so think of the effort that was expended to bring you to Christ. We are by nature lost. God, the missionary God, expends effort to find us. So we should not grow weary in the privilege of sharing in this joy. So we share the gospel. Because it is through the gospel that sinners repent, which results in heaven exploding in joy. Finding the lost is a disciple's priority. Finding the lost is a disciple's priority. And finally, Jesus involves himself with sinners, and so should we. Jesus involves himself with sinners, and so should we. And you know that so oftentimes we get so wrapped up in our Christian circles and Christian bubbles that we pretty soon don't have any Christian friends or influence. And I think that's a shame. In our church history class on Wednesday nights, we've been studying uh, the monastic period. A couple weeks ago, we studied the monastic period. And the the monks went and formed monasteries, and and they cloistered themselves. And there were some good things that came out of the monastic movement. But but one of the the sad things is that um, they just cloistered themselves, thinking that somehow by separating themselves from the world that they would not be influenced by their own sinful nature. But the bottom line, folks, is that if we are to um, engage the lost, 
We cannot cloister ourselves. We need to be amongst those who do not know the Lord. And so we need to be sometimes be intentional about it. And so a couple of lessons. Number one, recovery of the lost takes effort. Finding the lost should be our, our priority. And Jesus involves himself with sinners. And so should we. Let's spend a, just a couple of moments in quiet reflection and ask the Lord to show us if there's something that we need to respond to or think about or be convicted of or confess or say, I'm going to commit ourselves to and seek the Lord.